Yarnissed Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposies where we talk about art and environmentalism. And sitting across me here in the studio this morning is writer, storyteller and a practicing environmental activist, Kate Harris. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Ira. Thank you so much for having me on this morning and hi to all the listeners. What is your morning like so far? How was your journey here? My journey here began really early in the morning, earlier than I normally wake up because I have um ADHD and I had to quickly finish my story for today and I can only think really clearly when I have the adrenaline rushing and pulsing through my veins. So, it's been a good morning but productive. <laughs> So you wrote the story for our show specifically and you were writing it actually in the last moment because this is as you told me when you think the best when it's you know deadline is just around the corner when it's looming when the threat of public humiliation and shame is so great it just really helps me get my thoughts in order so I I do think about the story for a long time before <laughs> and then I'll start to kind of jot down notes throughout the week and then yesterday I, I tried to get a rough draft but it always fills me with terror to start a story it mm-hmm. feels like I like that idea I I'm not um putting my stories up to Michelangelo but was it him that was chipping away to find David underneath and I feel like stories it's kind of like trying to pare back all the noise to try to get to the essence of what you're trying to say mm And what is that moment when you write when you feel like you are in the flow and now it's going to be easier from that point? That's a great question. I guess it finally came to me um this morning. You know, I think it's when the tone finally feels closer to the truth. So for me this morning it was probably writing a couple of sentences about my dad and remembering what it felt like to be in that studio apartment with him and lift him up to use the toilet that I just I felt like I finally showed and didn't tell the readers what it it felt like because I tend to tell a lot mm-hmm. and I guess I have to sink into showing and when I show that feels more close to the truth and that that's when i feel the flow mm. so kate is here with us this morning to actually share the story that she wrote specifically for this show and the story ties the loss and the grief experienced through losing of her father with the grief that she is experiencing in the face of the climate change and environmental issues and before we go into reading these stories and I very much look forward to hearing it because it will be my first time to actually read it and hear it I want to ask you a bit about your own practicing activism in environmental issues which well I'm I'm sure it started even before but after the bushfires uh, in 2019 2020 you were encouraged to by yourself encouraged to start this thing that you call 30 day action where every day over 30 days you committed to doing at least one environmental action a day tell me about this moment when you decided okay that's it I'm going to do something about it Sure. I I think like so many of us um and I wasn't even directly affected in terms of you know having my house taken or loved ones taken or animals taken from the fires but just I think living in Sydney during that time I think we can all remember what it felt like to have kind of that 
two or three months of just that ever-present reminder by being able to smell and see the smoke of kind of climate change and devastation in action. And I think I felt a lot of despair and sadness and grief and shame over my own inaction with climate change and how I had, you know, and still do contribute to the problem. So I think in that grief, um, I know that in the past when I feel deep grief and I feel stuck, that just doing the next right thing, so just doing one thing, I've learned some lessons from some 12-step recovery programs that I meant about keeping it in the day. And even like Annie Lamont's book, Bird by Bird, like, what can I just do? What's right in front of me now? And so I just decided that just with my Facebook, I would just post at least one thing that I was doing every day for the betterment of the environment. Um, Sometimes it was four or five. And that I really feel that it helps me to kind of communally announce and share stories of what I'm doing because it helps to keep me motivated. So I really got so much from my friends kind of, um, you know, I'd ask for advice. The, The other part of why I realized I'd been not taking much action in terms of like writing to MPs and what have you is I think because I had ADHD my whole life and it wasn't diagnosed till adult, I always felt a little bit ill-educated. I dropped out of high school. I couldn't focus. I couldn't do homework. I I just felt like I'd be a bit shamed if I tried Mm -hmm. because I couldn't quite always clearly say in words what I meant. And I thought that I would be laughed at because I wasn't getting all the points right. And what I learned by just doing it and sharing it and seeing other people's actions was just that just the art of practicing and progress, not perfection, just was so freeing and liberating and made me feel a bit of levity amongst quite a heavy, scary period. Mm. And this um, idea to focus on progress rather than perfection was also something that was inspired by reading a book called An Uninhabitable Earth that you were actually listening rather than reading it was an audio book that you would take with you on a walks and you were saying to me how it took you about eight months to tackle that book because it was a scary material to digest but through reading that book this idea of not being overwhelmed by a normality of issue and rather thinking of just small steps that you we can do to prevent even bigger issues came to you yeah thanks for mentioning that that was actually that actually happened recently and you're right that I I did purchase the audiobook over 8 months ago and it was just sitting in my phone and I was too scared to listen to it and I actually really recommend the audiobook I mean it helps me cuz I'm a kinesthetic learner so I can I can retain more info if I'm moving while I'm listening but um David Wallace Wells his voice is quite high And he's got a very kind of, I don't know, I think he's a New Yorker, but there's something almost optimistic in his tone, even though it is not in any way um, about what he's talking about. But I just felt like it helped lighten the load of the severity of the subject. But but what you just said, um, absolutely, what I found, and I, I write about this in the story, is that I have kind of an all or nothing, you know, vibe in in life in general. And I kind of had this belief that we either are solving climate change, or we fail and we're screwed. Um, I And so every time that 
I would hear the bad news or the ice melting or, or how dire things were. I was like, oh, well, we failed. And I've, I'd kind of sink into a despair and a frozen, you know, that kind of fight, flight, freeze, when really we should tend and befriend, which comes um, as well. So when I finished listening to that book, as hard as it was to listen through, and I so recommend it to everybody, um, and I'm sure many of you have read it, but what I just got, and it, I'll, I won't use poor language on the show, but is that things are already really, really bad. Like even if we stop right this moment where things are really dire, but they can get more and more dire. So what degree of dire do we want? And to take action today is going to affect that sliding scale. So just kind of knowing that there's a nuance, a grayness and not being black or white kind of helped me rise above right now that feeling of well, there's no hope. It's like, well, it's better to take action and it feels better to work together no matter what. It'll be a better experience. Hmm. And now you're also speaking about this concept of uh, just thinking about 24 hours ahead of what's the next good thing that we can do rather than having this enormous mountain of desire of where we want to get to ideally in front of us which is a very powerful way of not getting lost in hopefulness, basically, because it's just too big to tackle otherwise. That's yeah. right. And I, I think kind of recovery programs I've been in have really helped with that because there's, there's things, you know, when you're an addict that you feel like if you're never allowed to have your addiction again, it, it can feel overwhelming. But if we're, we're kind of taught to just keep it in the day, what's the next right thing? You only have 24 hours and what can you do today? And anything or most things, sorry, feel more manageable when you put it in a 24 hour frame. Because otherwise, yeah. I, I personally get very overwhelmed very, very easily. Likewise, I think most of us do. You're on ESED Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Sympoesis, where we talk about art and environmentalism. I'm talking to Kate Harris right now. She's a writer, storyteller, and environmental activist who is practicing progress and not perfection, and it's her way to actually deal with environmental grief and anxiety. And talking about grief, Kate is actually here to share with us a story she wrote specifically for this show, and the story ties the experience of losing her father and grief that she felt then and the way she's feeling about the state of nature, the Mother Earth. Kate, would you like to take us through this story? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ira. This is called Living Grief. I think I'm leaving at the right time, my dad said, through his Parkinson's disease clip staccato, as he twitched and swayed, his hands curled up like a butterfly tongue. He sat on the bed wearing a pair of gray diapers in his favorite hemp t-shirt by Marcel, a local hemp designer that was now stained with an archaeological assortment of food droplets from where his spoon had zigzagged like a teasing typewriter as he tried, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, to catch the food in his mouth. Dad would be alive for three more days, and after his constant companion, the Rachel Maddow show, had kept him abreast of the news throughout the year, I guess he surmised it was a good time to leave this party. At night, Dad needed to be moved every few moments as his body froze, 
leaving him a prisoner within, the claustrophobia all-consuming. We would take turns doing night shifts to help move his body into a variety of positions, and with aching backs pray that each new position might bring him just a little bit of peace. It didn't. One night, after feeling into position number 22 for a moment, Dad said, Okay, I need the bathroom. I stood in front of Dad, squatting slightly, and offered him my arms as he grasped on. I leaned back as Dad started to rise to his feet, and when he looked up at me, he said, I'm worried about you, Kate. His brow frozen into a furrow. I laughed nervously, straining to hold Dad's weight. Ah, thanks, Dad, I said, and we twirled with outstretched arms in a semicircle, like Jack and Rose and Titanic, and then lowered Dad into his wheelchair. The truth was I was worried, too. I knew on the plane trip over to California from Sydney that this visit would be the last time I would see my dearly beloved dad alive. No amount of volume, rom-coms, or complimentary Tim Tams could subdue the deep, sinking feeling of dread. Like Persephone, but with a larger carbon footprint, I had made the journey to Santa Barbara every year to be with my family and to spend time with my pops. On one of my visits, I gently teased Dad about the new way he was eating his tortilla soup, grasping his spoon as though it were a handlebar of a tricycle, and willing it towards his mouth with all the focus he could muster. Dad, you're eating your soup a little bit like a toddler, I smiled. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a few months later. With each new year, Dad would be changed. First to go would be his gait. Now more of a shuffle. Call me Mr. Shuffles, Dad said, as we carefully walked along the sidewalk to his favorite cafe, where the staff got his humor, and he could enjoy a double espresso with heavy cream, lots of sugar, and an apple muffin. The next year, Dad would be slighter, his face a little more frozen, with a new maroon walker that I would sit on just outside the doorway of his studio in the sun, beneath the birds nibbling from the bird feeder, as Dad sat on his single bed on the light blue satin sheets that my sister had given him so he wouldn't get stuck when he slept. We would drink Dad's favorite beer, arrogant bastard pale ale, and talk or watch his favorite Nordic crime drama that always had a beautiful, smart, and unsmiling woman at the helm. The following year, I wanted to push my trip back a few months, "'But you said you would be here in June,' Dad said on the phone, in a tone unfamiliar to me, disappointed and desperate. "'I know, Dad, I'm sorry. A few things have just come up, but I'll be there soon.' When I walked into his studio, Dad was almost unrecognizable. He was half his usual size and looked like a baby bird, skin translucent, head tilted, arms bent like chick wings, right foot craned and swaying side to side.' He looked up at me and gave me a huge smile of welcome. I walked over and I crouched down in front of him, unable to stop the tears from streaming down my cheeks, both so grateful to see him and so sad that this disease was bending and swallowing him up whole. Hi, Dad, hi, I managed. Hi, sweetie, Dad chirped back. Dad had wanted a motorized scooter, 
an off-road thingamajigger that looked like it was made for combat and could go on the rough terrain and allow him more freedom. We didn't have the money for it, so instead a friend gave him a wheelchair from their work. We would take Dad for spins along the beach promenade, the wheelchair gently rocking as Dad's body contorted and swayed. As each person passed us from the other direction, Dad would look them in the eye, face frozen in a discerning expression as though he were judging a French mustard, and then he would make a peace sign up at them. Some passers would respond with tentative smiles, concerned looks, or maybe nothing at all. But my favorites were the people who smiled joyously at Dad and with a, hey there, flashed a peace sign back. How's Harry? My mom asked when I got home one afternoon, using my dad's nickname from when they were married. I don't know, he's forgetting things. He keeps forgetting if he's taken his medication, I said. Oh, I do that too, love. I'm sure he'll be fine. I don't think he's fine, Mom. He's changing. Well, he sounded okay when I spoke to him on the phone the other day, my mom continued, I guess trying to make things a little more positive for all of us. I just stared ahead with a sinking feeling. Nothing felt okay. I used to think you grieved people when they were gone, but watching Parkinson's take over my dad, it felt like a living grief. Like the disease was an invisible foe throwing punches at him as he desperately tried to stay on his feet and in the game, but stumbling, constantly knocked to the ground. When the bushfires happened a year and a half ago, I felt this living grief again. I was in a car on a country road and I saw the sky turn black with smoke above the glow and then glow tangerine and rust towards the horizon, a strip of white light finding its way only along the very bottom. I whipped my neck forwards and back, forwards and back, passing sheep and their lambs, horses and their colts. I wanted to pack them all up and take them with me. I saw the fires with their mammoth plumes of smoke blooming into the sky over the bush where the brave RFS crews and volunteers and locals were fighting against the feral flames. Past all the animals, the flora, the land of the traditional custodians, people with their homes in there, the kangaroos who chuckle when they court, sugar gliders with 50 meters of flight, echidnas who don't dream but can swim, emus who are raised by their dads and softly whistle to each other, koalas who cry out when they are scared and they shake, and so very many more. As I drove, my tears started to pour down and I chanted a prayer over and over. I'm so sorry I'm leaving you behind in there. The smoke bloomed shades of scarlet ash russet. And just before it turned the color of bone and lace, I saw light dancing across the smoke, a glimmer of rainbow sheer. And I feel it is the animals and the spirits rising there, finally free from all the rage below. I would awake in those months in the middle of the night, often in a panic attack, breathless, craving fresh air, but for many of us at that time to open our windows would be to inhale a thick, soupy smoke. I felt bereft, guilty, and scared about climate change and my part in it, that I decided to do 30 plus days of positive action for the environment, starting small, putting water out for birds 
to placing used toilet paper in the bin to conserve water, remembering the saying from my childhood, if it's yellow, be mellow, if it's brown, flush it down, to writing my local and state MPs, even though I felt shy and ashamed at first that I wasn't eloquent or knowledgeable enough to speak, signing petitions, donating to Seed Mob, the RFS, animal rights and animal rescue nonprofits, changing my financial institutions to ones that don't support fossil fuels. I actually need to do this again. I had an ADHD hiccup and becoming a vegan. I drew pictures of kangaroos, emus, wallabies, cows, horses, koalas, and their joeys, just a handful of the animals that perished during the bushfires. I surrounded them in native flora with the words, lest we forget, in hopes of auctioning them to raise money for animal charities. Recently, after eight months of being too scared, I finally listened to David Wallace Wells read his book, The Uninhabitable Earth. David begins, It is worse, much worse than you think. If your anxiety about global warming is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you are barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible. Food shortages, refugee emergencies, climate wars, and economic devastation. Unquote. Throughout the book, I had to hit pause many times to try and catch my breath, to calm down, but I am very grateful that I listened to it. One of the main things I took away is that things are already really, really, really bad, but it's a scale of really, really, really bad. I think I believe that we either completely solve climate change or we failed, and I kept getting overwhelmed and then not doing anything. My perfectionism got in the way, like in fifth grade, when I spent the three months allocated to work on our school report trying to find the right colored note card to write the notes on, and then had to write the whole thing the night before, crunching on my parents' coffee beans to stay awake, later shitting blood. Dad's friends and massage community rallied together to help make him more comfortable in the final months of his life. They tore up the carpet of the small studio so he could better wheel around. They made him a small ramp, removed his bathroom door so he could fit inside with his walker and wheelchair, got him a bidet aptly named Coco, brought in a rowing machine so he could still exercise safely. They made a roster and took turns sitting, cooking, turning dad, taking him on walks, talking, just being together. Dad said the day before he died, even amidst all his pain, discomfort, and terror, I'm just not ready to leave all this love. He was experiencing what he called in his own words, so much grace. Years after Dad passed, I was riding on a bike path near the ocean in Santa Barbara, and I was feeling lost and sad, and I was missing him when a man in a baseball cap and sunglasses, riding a beach cruiser bicycle, approached from the other direction. I glanced over, just managing a faint smile of recognition at him, and he gave me a huge warm smile, and then he held up a peace sign.
That was Kate Harris reading for us a story called The Living Grief. Is that right, Kate? Yes. Thank you very much. You wrote this story specifically for this show. I'm sure it will find other outlets as well. well thank you so much for giving me something to write for. I, I, I normally need some <laughs> something to write to or else I don't do much. Mm-hmm. There are so many things in the story that struck a chord for me and we could go in so many different directions. But there are a couple I'd like to pull out in specific and one is this uh, fact that you were living with a living grief, as you say, and that you knew that it's not reversible, that the, the end of your father is coming and yet you felt that the way to go about it is to show service and love and you make an analogy between that and how to deal and tackle with the grief that we are experiencing in regards to the climate change and what's going on with the Mother Earth. Yeah, absolutely. I just I just was feeling in my body how I felt with climate change and the, and the grief that kind of lives as kind of a river current within always. And that, you know, that little sense that something is always a bit wrong. And, you know, I, I definitely practice kind of elements of denial and overwhelm with dad's death as I do with climate change, you know, and that's for me at least where, um, you know, I can get so easily distracted in the minutia of day-to-day living or even, you know, I can, sometimes I can't even function enough to do the dishes, you know, much feels overwhelming. And that's where I think kind of the only way that I know for my brain that I can behave in a way that I feel um, kind of, I like the the saying, you build esteem by doing esteemable acts. And the way to do that for me is if I do one thing every day and it can be really small. And to be honest, you know, I I stopped that during COVID. I was putting my attention elsewhere. And I, I thought with the radio show today, this would be a really nice opportunity that I'm actually going to start 90 days of action, but I'm going to focus it more on the political action for climate change. And I thought I'd start it today. So thanks for inviting me because, you know, that's going to spur this new 90 days of action. And hopefully it it continues. Hopefully it's 90 plus days. Mm. And is the first day today meaning that you're here and speaking about it and reading the text or are you about to do something else? could mean that but I'm going to do something else I'm going to I think today I'm going to write a letter to an MP or an email so that they don't have to I I heard that they um, respond to you the way you respond to them so if it's email then they don't have to waste paper and postage (laughs) and 90 days of writing to MPs is that a plan or what kind of bigger political actions have you envisaged and I'm sure you will be developing the ideas as you go yeah, as well. I'll be developing ideas. I'll be reaching out and asking friends. Um, it won't just be writing. Um, I've started to really enjoy something that used to terrify me, which is actually calling companies that might engage in using, you know, fossil fuels or what have you, or supporting fossil fuel industry. I really have started to enjoy calling up. How did you go over that curve of, finding courage and starting to enjoy something that terrified you in the past what was the turning point i think social media has some great tools like joining the extinction rebellion and just um stop adani and all those great organizations and seed and 
WWF. And once you join enough of them, you get told when actions are occurring because they're doing such great work every day. And so if you're plugged in and you start to see other citizens writing on those feeds about their experience of calling up and they actually had a really pleasant chat with the receptionist that didn't know what was happening with her company or his company and that it doesn't have to be this kind of angry shaming experience that I thought would I would be met by if mm -hmm. I called and also that they oftentimes give you kind of a bare bones script that you can then work off of and you can personalize but you don't have to be the expert to know what you think is right and to mm -hmm. make your voice heard so just calling up myself having pleasant experiences you either leave a message or you talk to someone and they've actually probably been called by 50 other people that morning they take down your details and something also happened during the bushfires i i wish i remembered her name but someone who works in parliament actually did like a video tutorial almost about how important it is to write your MP and actually how few letters or emails they get. You know, I always was of the erroneous belief that, oh, there's already so many people doing it. You know, why, you know, my voice isn't needed. But, but when you hear that actually they're not getting the numbers, it just, I don't know, kind of propelled me to want to, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write and share and hear other friends' stories about their actions and get inspired. So I think the real, you know, coming together, I mean, this is going to be a ground. It is a movement from the ground up, and we need each other mm. to put pressure on our political structures. I think that's a nice place to end the conversation with you this morning, Kate. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for writing your story. This is Kate Harris. Remember that name. And you're on ESET Radio, 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday, Simpoesis, where we talk about art and environmentalism. We'll just have a little break. And then after that, I will be in conversation with uh, textile artist, printmaker, and environmental advocate, Gloria Flores, who is uh, coming here to talk to us about her ongoing project called Forest Ambassadors. We'll find out all about that in a few minutes. ESET Radio, 89.7 FM.